as our uh, little ones are leaving, aren't they a blessing? What a special day. Well, um, you may have forgotten, but my name is Brent, <laughs> and uh, I used to preach here fairly often <laughs> until the spring of this year, and then things got weird. Uh, it's really good to be back with you. Since March, I have been in Israel a total of 46 days. That means at least three coming and goings, which means three weeks of aftermath. And what's the old saying, the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. The jet lag that used to take three, I discovered this past week, took five. And so I wasn't a great help to Chris uh, trying to jump in and get ready for uh, this coming week. But I want to begin by sharing with you that during this time that I've been going back and forth and being in Israel, we've, I've tried to include some days uh, prior to and after the groups for the sake of ministry. And I know that we've invited many of you to pray and many of you were aware that uh, via the call through the International House of Prayer that over 5 million people uh, rose up to pray for Israel during the first 21 days or so uh, in May leading up to Shavuot, leading up to the Feast of Pentecost, which is when I was going over and really anticipating that the Lord was going to do some great things. And I don't have time to go into all that today, but let me just thank you for your prayers and tell you, he did. And Yeshua is to be praised uh, because he really came through. It's interesting to me that uh, when I was thinking about how many days I was there, the number 46, when I totaled it up, that's kind of a relevant number for me today. Because 46 years ago, June, July, I believe of... 1977, the summer months growing up for me were always a really, uh, an amazing time for me to connect with the Lord. I was a preacher's kid, so I went to church camp for a week, and then after my freshman year of high school, I also went to a thing called the Christ in Youth Conference. It was a much larger uh, week experience for high school students. And it was at one of those conferences 46 years ago this year in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, that at the end of the service, when they extended an invitation to those who wanted to receive Jesus as Lord and be baptized, but also to those who might be feeling called into what we referred to back then as full-time Christian service, meaning being called into ministry, it was at that moment that I found myself slipping past my friends in the aisle and suddenly finding myself in the aisle and going forward to do just that, to get, dedicate my life as a 14, 15-year-old kid to being in the ministry. Because of that, a year later, I added to the camp and the conference a two-week program that that same ministry was offering called the Preacher Training Institute, which was for young boys who wanted to, who had dedicated their life to the ministry and kind of wanted to get a jump on Bible college. And so we, uh, the first one was held here in Oklahoma City. There used to be a Bible college on the north side of town. Maybe some of you will remember it, Midwest Christian College. And for two weeks, I went there with 33 other young men and with four Bible college professors and began to prepare myself to serve the Lord. Why do I say all that? Because Monday we're about to engage in a week called Covenant Youth Camp. And I simply cannot overstate to you today how utterly important weeks like that are for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, and literally for the sake of the nation and the world. Our goal and our passion for that camp is to lift up the mighty name of Yeshua, Jesus our Lord, as we have done in this place today, 
and to call our youth into a deeper and more meaningful walk with him as their Messiah and they as his disciples. Who Messiah is has never been more under attack than in this day and hour in which we live. So while we're planning to gather at the first part of next week to elevate the name of Jesus, others are preparing to do exactly the opposite at the end of that week. Because of this, it's time for us to have a heart-to-heart. I'm not preaching today. I'm not going to exegete a Bible text. We need to talk. We need to have a conversation between us. Because as I said, while we're preparing to exalt the name of Jesus, others are preparing to diminish him, even in the lives of people and friends that you know. And it's time for us to understand what's going on. So as I said, this is going to be a conversation between us. And what you do with it will be up to the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Yeshua, your word will not fail. You have never failed me once in my life. And even though, Master, in this moment, I confess a bit of timidity, concern, maybe some remnant fear, I know you'll meet me here. And I pray, Father, that whoever hears the things that I have to share just between us, whether it's here in person or online today or down the way, that in that moment, your spirit will be as powerfully present there as it is here, as he is here right now. So, Lord, I humbly submit this time to you. And ask that you would be a partner in this conversation between us. All to the glory of Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now let me begin by saying this. I really don't like ministries that feel they are the grand inquisitors. The people who are assigned to call out every other group of people and to identify ministries or people by name that they don't like. I think sometimes those uh, preachers and pastors who end up on, on the airwaves and online feel an entitlement to do that. And while sometimes maybe that is what God is calling them to do, I've never been comfortable with that. And so bringing up what I need to bring up today is not easy for me. And I want you to know that. So why do I call this a conversation between us? Because at the end of next week, another group of people are going to be gathering in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and they call their group Bayenu, which in Hebrew means between us. It was an organization that was formed by a woman who grew up as an Assembly of God pastor's kid who literally went and lived in Israel to do ministry to share the gospel with Jewish people. And then she encountered a very famous rabbi who is very skilled at what he does, which is being an anti-missionary. 
meaning his role, what he sees his life calling is to do, is to undermine everything we teach either in the church or even in Messianic Judaism. It doesn't matter whether it's Jews or Gentiles. He wants to rob them of the faith they have that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is incredibly skilled at doing it. And I suspect if he ever hears this or gets a copy of this message, it'll make him feel very good. Kudos to you. You're good at what you do. I'm not going to call him by name. Yet. Neither am I going to name the lady and her assembly of, former Assembly of God pastor father who both apostatized from the faith in Yeshua, completely renounced him and walked away. This, this organization has gained a lot of uh, credibility amongst the Jewish community because they exposed a Christian husband and wife who were living in Israel pretending to be Orthodox Jews living as Orthodox Jews. Friends, may I, may I just say right now, you do not share the one who is the way, the truth, and the life by means of deception. It, it deserved way more than that. You do not share the gospel of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life by means of deception. That's not who we are. We do not have to hide or apologize for our faith in Yeshua. It is founded on the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. There's no need to hide. And we don't need to trick people into what we believe. When these people were exposed, and God knows their hearts, I'm not judging their hearts, but I am judging their method. It gave this organization great credibility. The rabbi that spoke to her and then that she came across and was used to undermine her faith, he'll be speaking there as the main speaker. They'll be honoring a former Southern Baptist pastor who also apostatized from the faith and is well known as an archaeologist and a leader in the Noahide movement, which is telling people that Jesus isn't the Messiah, and as a Gentile, all you need to do are keep the seven laws of Noah. You might discern, I'm a bit agitated. But that's not what I want to convey to you today. Because every single person that is in this room today that has had any history with the Hebrew-loving, Torah-friendly, Messianic-Jewish-connected, however you want to frame it, version and flavor of the body of Christ, there is probably no one in this room that has had history of that that does not know that someone somebody who has turned and walked away from Jesus. And it happened because they started listening to a rabbi who knew things they didn't know and weren't skilled enough to understand the deception, the misrepresentation, the out-of-context, the misrepresentation of text... Now, today, we're not going to exegete a scripture, but come July 15th, you come back, and we're going to deal with at least one particular prophecy that they love to attack. But what happened, and the reason we need to have a conversation today, is how did we get here, and who are we going to be as a people and a congregation? So let's begin with a little history of how we got here today. 
1948, the Jerusalem reunion uh, be, didn't happen in 48, but the seeds of it began. In 1948, Israel was restored as a nation exactly as the prophetic word of God had indicated would happen. And when Israel was reborn as a nation, not as the kingdom of God, can we say that? You will not find anybody more pro-Israel than me, but Israel is not the restored kingdom of God. Unredeemed men and women make unredeemed mistakes. And I love them passionately. And I support Israel. But that does not mean that I am foolish enough to see Israel as the restored kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. God had promised Abraham that he would, uh, promised Abraham that he would restore the inheritance of his descendants. And that thing stirred in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And in 1948, they came out of the nations. And for the first time in millennia, Israel was reborn. And a question began to move through the hearts and minds, not only of the Jewish people, but also of the church. Is this the beginning of the restoration of God's kingdom on the earth? And if so, is the coming Messiah imminent? Are we living in the age of the Messiah? The rabbinic answer in general to that question was not yet. For only when Jerusalem was once again in the hands of the Jewish people should they begin to expect the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, in 1967, barely 19 years after that moment in the Six-Day War, Jewish soldiers and accompanied by the, uh, the chief rabbi of the Israeli army made their way to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, blew a shofar, and declared the beginning of the age of the Messiah. Two amazing things began to stir both in the hearts of Jews and Christians. Both began to sense that God was on the move and both were right. At least those in each camps that actually still believed in God's prophetic word. There were some who just saw, were just happy that Israel was restored and they just saw it as a political dink, but didn't necessarily see the providence of God. But those within the Jewish and Christian camps who believed in God's word, they did. As the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem, something began in their hearts, in the hearts of Christians around the world. A new love for Israel, and the Jewish people began to take hold in the church. As Israel returned to Jerusalem, the, to the heart of their ancient faith, the Christian's heart returned to, Israel's, to Israel, to the ancient people that God had chosen. Christian pilgrimage skyrocketed. Tourism skyrocketed. Christian awareness of the deception of the U.S.-based news organizations began to be exposed as countless believers discovered the misinformation that was being spewed by the major American networks. I would come home and I would watch it nightly. I literally watched ABC, NBC, and CBS report one time on an event going on in Israel, and all three of those networks had, had people in Jerusalem, and for three nights I watched them and listened to them intentionally deceive the nation because they knew that a tunnel that ran north-south had been opened while the whole world was, while the, 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 the Palestinians were rioting, saying that it was an east-west tunnel that had been opened. And ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN, they all knew it. And the more Christians began to make pilgrimage to Israel, the more they began, let me tell you something, you, you think the, doubt, our, our, the situation where we're in where we doubt the, the integrity of the media began with our politicians, it began with Israel. The more believers started coming home and seeing, wait a minute, that's not what's happening over there the more doubts we began to have about the integrity of the media we depended so much upon. But something else was about to happen that would shock the world. It would shock the world since we had not seen anything like it since the days of Pentecost in the early days of the church. The Jesus Revolution. How many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie? The Jesus Revolution story is my childhood. 
The story is of a Christian hippie named Lonnie Frisbee and a traditional Christian pastor named Chuck Smith, both in California in the 70s. The Jesus Revolution was a national revival began when a generation of young American hippies began to accept Jesus as their Savior and were being baptized in droves. A generation that was already on a quest to find real meaning and real love found it in the one God had sent to redeem the world and, and show his love. The unlikely pairing of a young street preacher named Lonnie and this traditional church pastor, Chuck Smith, became the seedbed that God used to start a revival and a re revolution. How many of you remember the Jesus movement? Man, how old are you? <laughs> I remember those days in South Oklahoma City. My father was a preacher of the Draper Park Christian Church, and he was as square as square could possibly be. Long after everybody else had stopped wearing flat tops, my dad was still wearing flat top and suits everywhere he went. I'm like, Dad, we're going to the park. You don't have to look like that. However, I must admit, his choice of Bermuda shorts were just as offensive. <laughs> he was as square as he was square could be. Yet like Chuck Smith, he recognized that God was doing something in this wild-looking generation of long-haired, unkept teenage hippies with ponytails and man buns. I, 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 you know, I'm not casting aspersions, just saying. Okay, I'm still on. Our church had a Jesus house where these Jesus hippies would come and hang out. And I remember the first time I met one, we hired one to be our youth minister. And when I walked in and was introduced, he was far out, man. Now, I'm a little Yankee from Illinois, and he was sitting on our church secretary's desk with his, sitting on the desk with his feet in her chair, and this little prim and proper son of a square was like, what, what is wrong with that guy? But they would come in droves to the Jesus house, but they didn't want to come into church on Sunday. And that didn't bother me because they kind of smelled. Until one Sunday I walked in and our church, we had these uh, metal chairs and there was a whole section of the metal chairs that were gone. And there were blankets on the floor. And hippies. Hippies. And my dad. The contrast could not have been greater. I honor my dad for recognizing that something was happening in that generation. Those young hippies, you may be saying, well, Brent, what does that have to do with me here at a Saturday church? Okay, now pay attention to what I'm about to say. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those hippies. Are you aware of that? Because that movement, let me explain it to you. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And all those old people who remembered know that phrase too. Let me go Paul Harvey on you. You see, these Jewish hip or these 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 teenage hippies that started on the West Coast and that moved to the to the East Coast and up to New York, because that's that's where you know, kids like to hang out. They went to the beach areas, and guess who these Jesus hippies began to encounter? Jewish hippies. And these teenage Christian hippies did what almost 1,600 years, or forget the math, maybe 17, I don't know, 
that the organized church hadn't done. They started introducing Jewish kids to Jesus. And for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, Jewish young people started calling on the name of Jesus and getting saved. You want to talk about a revival. Did you know that? The whole messianic movement started with Jesus freak hippie teenagers. <clears throat> Bothers me. Wearing man buns. <laughs> why, Lord, why? <laughs> I was en route to speak to a messianic winter camp in Canada friend of mine, and we stopped to preach at a little house church in Nebraska. And calling it a house church was really an overstatement because it really looked like it was going to fall down on us. I was almost afraid to go into it. But it was out in Cornfield County, and uh, our host family was, had a huge pork farm. That was fun. And uh, we went the next morning, and I was going to teach Sunday school and then preach, and when it was time for the main worship service, I looked to my left, and a couple college kids came in, and a gentleman came in with them and sat right down in front of me, a few rows back. And I looked at that brother, and I've been in Israel enough to know. <laughs> um, my first thought was, what are you doing here? I mean... This dude, forgive me, was as Jewish as you could be. And I've been in Israel enough to recognize the family. And we're in the middle of Pork County. What, you, what is he doing here? And I started telling the story of those first Jewish hippies who came to know Jesus. When it was over, they had a little pitch-in lunch. And he came and sat down across from me because he wanted to talk. I said, brother, first of all, I have to ask you a question. What are you doing here? How in the world? <laughs> he was a professor at the nearest town, and I guess there must have been a town somewhere nearby big enough to have a college. And some of his students had told him that I was going to be speaking. He looked at me and he said, Brent, I could not have told my own testimony any better than what you did. I was a first wave Jewish Jesus hippie. Now, when all that began, this is where the Jews for Jesus movement began with a lot of these young Jewish people coming to faith. But actually, prior to that, in the late 1800s, a couple, guys, a couple guys named Count Zinzendorf and Joseph Rabinowitz had started kind of pushing the terminology of Hebrew Christians. And eventually, they were successful in 1849 in starting Christ Church inside the old city, just inside the Jaffa Gate in the old city of Jerusalem. But it really wasn't until the Jesus movement of the 70s did we really begin to see North American Jewish people accepting Jesus. At first, they functioned under the banner of Hebrew Christians, but they knew the terminology would not resonate with the larger Jewish community. Organizations like Jews for Jesus began to flourish, bringing in new believers in Jesus, but eventually they knew they needed to create an authentically Jewish environment to reach their Jewish communities. And the Messianic Jewish movement was born or Messianic Judaism. The belief was that if Jesus was offered in an authentically Jewish recognizable context, the Jewish people would finally accept the gospel. And while they hoped for a flood of new believers, only a stream resulted. Some did. Some came. Some just saw them as Christians pretending to be Jews, even though the, the original core was Jewish. But they had to learn a hard lesson 
as well intended as the motive was, putting on a kippah and wearing tzitzit and meeting on Shabbat does not settle all the issues you have to address in regard to Messiah. It may help, but those aren't the things that are keeping, we're keeping Jewish people from accepting the Messiah. And as I said, while they had hoped for a flood of Jewish people and the stream has continued to grow and grow, what they did experience was a flood of non-Jewish Gentile Christians who fell in love with what God was doing among the Jewish people and wanted to be a part of it. They began to attend those congregations, but this presented a huge problem and one that persists to this day because nothing turns off a Jewish heart faster than a Gentile pretending to be Jewish. You remember, we're having a conversation between us, okay? If you vehemently disagree with me, I'll let you take me out for a steak dinner and you can tell me all about it. I'm, I'm, I'm just that gracious. I'll get the tip, maybe. Depends on how much I spend. So in short, we non-Jews muddied the waters. And this tension led to non-Jewish believers having to form an offshoot to the Messianic Jewish movement, for lack of a better term, a Gentile Messianic movement. And I know they would not like that because some of them got so invested, oh no, we, Gentile's a dirty word. It wasn't to the, Paul, the apostles. For the first time since the apostles, we had Jewish eyes and ears seeing and hearing the Hebraic context of what was happening in the New Testament. And the more we learned, the more excited we became about all things Hebraic and Jewish because it was opening up the New Testament and we were understanding things like we'd never heard before until the enemy infiltrated our ranks. In a never-ending quest to find the Hebraic bombshell or Jewish contextual nugget, we began turning to the ancient Chazal, the sages of Israel, who wrote the Gemara and the Midrash and the Talmud. And as late as the 13th century, some rabbis introduced Kabbalah, a Hebrew word that just means reception, but it's Jewish mysticism. It's looking at the scriptures at the, at the mystery level. They offered a new interpretive formula, a lens by which to interpret the scriptures called Pardes. And Pardes is just an acronym for the four ways they saw the text of Scripture. Pashat meaning the plain sense meaning of the text. Remez just means an illusion or an allegory. That Sometimes the terminology that is being used is intended to make you connect to another passage, to another story, to another context. They also had the drosh level, which was the homiletical or applicational level. David slew Goliath. You can slay your giants too. You understand? And then they had the sod level. I like to call it the sod level because you think of the surface and you think below the surface. And that was the mystery level, which they delved into the meanings of the letters, the way the letters were written, and all kinds of esoteric things that they had passed down. Now, I want to give this qualification. The bottom line is that Scripture, Scripture that is God-breathed, that comes from the miraculous person of God is supernatural in every single form of it. If the sentences are inspired, then the words are inspired and the letters are inspired and, and there, there is a, an unending treasure trove of the miraculous way the story is told. But after you figure out how the letters are written and all the mystery meanings of the letters, if you don't believe the words that form the sentences that tell the story of God's love, it's all worthless. And people began to fall in love deeper and deeper. Now listen, I, I will make reference. I got in big trouble with the ministry years ago because I referenced this. And they decided that I was endorsing Kabbalah. I'm not going to endorse. Does it sound like I'm endorsing Kabbalah? Absolutely not. However, God bless them. Every once in a while, the Kabbalists were honest enough to see something in the scripture that lo and behold, perfectly matches the New Testament. 
When a Jewish person tells me nobody in Judaism ever saw the plurality of the Godhead, I'm like, excuse me, not true. The Kabbalists did. They even ask the question how three can be one and then answer the question how three can be one can only be known by the help of the Holy Spirit. Pretty good answer. Have you figured it out? Don't tell me nobody in Judaism ever saw that because as a matter of fact, sometimes the Kabbalists say things that are helpful. And I got in trouble for using them illustratively and someone thought that I was endorsing all of what they did. Once discovered by the Hebrew Roots Movement, it led them into the new Gnostic heresy. What is the first Gnostic heresy? The first Gnostic heresy that the early church faced came from Greek philosophy, and it was that the spiritual and physical do not mix. Spiritual heaven and material earth cannot interact. And if that is the case, then Jesus could not have actually come in the form of a man because that's the material world and he's from the spiritual world. Therefore, he didn't actually become a man. He only appeared to come as a man. That was the first Gnostic heresy. And much of what you read in the writings of John in the New Testament are speaking directly against that. Let me sidebar. Think of it. Will you see a circle? Will you just see a circle? You see it? Okay, that's God. That's, that's the spiritual. And when this God who is spirit spoke the world into existence, this material, corporeal world, where did it come from? Within a spiritual, from out of a spiritual being. Now will you think of another circle? We'll call it planet Earth. And it's a globe. Oh, I'm getting all kinds of trouble today. Now let me ask you a question. If the physical, corporeal world can come forth from the spiritual, how is it that people preach and teach that the spiritual, physical corporeal world cannot have the spiritual within it because if you don't believe that stop telling me you believe that God created the world are you, do you understand the illustration I'm robbing my own thunder I wanted to use a nice graphic I'm old school but if God who is spirit can speak a physical corporeal world into existence, how do we say he cannot then indwell that physical corporeal world by his spirit? Newsflash, the first Gnostic heresy was wrong. The word became flesh. It didn't just appear to become flesh. But here's the irony. The Hebrew Roots Movement did the exact same thing. They just used Hebrew mystical interpretation to get there. The Hebrew Roots Gnosticism said the same thing about the Hebrew. Because Hebrew was perceived as superior to Greek, all things Greek became pagan. If all things Greek are pagan, then the assault on the Greek New Testament scriptures was inevitable. Soon you couldn't say church, you couldn't say Christian, you couldn't say Jesus, and Paul could not be trusted because he wrote in Greek, because after all, all things Greek are pagan, and the only way you can really know the truth is you have to have that gnosis, that knowledge, that secret knowledge of the Hebrew. Come on. We created a new Gnostic heresy and we watched it obliterate our congregations and our families. Because if you can't trust Paul and you can't trust the Greek New Testament, then why are we following Jesus? And we watched a generation walk away. Nothing new under the sun, huh? 
And the funny thing is that the people who went down that path fell for the very same lie The word cannot become flesh. They had forgotten what the ancient sages had concluded 200 years before Jesus' birth when Alexander the Great sequestered 70 Jewish scholars to write a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. They weren't sure they could do it, and they looked to the scriptures for an answer, and they found their answer in Genesis 9:27 when Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. He said, may God enlarge Japheth, father of the Greek people, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And when those sages looked at that verse, they said, you know what? The Hebrew name Yafet, Japheth, is built on the word that means beauty. If you go to Israel and people see something that's pretty, Yofi, Yofi. You go to the ancient city of Jaffa, Yafo, same root. And they concluded that, the, that Japheth, that the way that Japheth would come and dwell in the tents of Shem, and may I, I refer to that as the beautiful tents of Jacob. Remember the scripture has, talks about the beautiful tents of Jacob. Can you just kind of see it in your mind's eye, you know, looking out of the valley in the tabernacle? That somehow this beautiful language of Greek with its precision was going to come and find a place in the story that's being told through the descendants of Shem. We forgot that. We forgot that 250 years before Jesus, Jewish communities outside of the Holy Land were using a Greek copy of the Tanakh. And when Paul and the other apostles went into all those cities in the diaspora and first went to the synagogue, guess what they were reading? The Jewish Greek Septuagint. But they didn't understand what we had figured out. We'd figured out the secret knowledge. We'd learned how to pronounce the het. And it's always better if you can say it with a little <laughs> Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Hebrew language, okay? Don't, I mean, I love it. I know enough to buy a bagel and get thrown in jail, okay? Or at least know how to call somebody. I love it. I'm still learning it. But saying it in Hebrew doesn't make it more true. What God said is true in every language. I watched a generation of young people, we thought we were teaching the deeper truths of the Bible, abandon their faith in Yeshua. Some became agnostic, some converted to Judaism. A young girl at a camp leaned over to me one day and she said, I don't know what to do. My family went to Israel to work the harvest with four other families. All four of those other families have decided to renounce their faith in Jesus and convert to Judaism, and my parents are thinking about doing the same thing. What do I do? And I told her, don't do it. Respect your parents, but honor your heavenly father. The antagonism toward the church and against Jesus was shocking and heart-wrenching. I remember taking a group of Messianic believers to a Messianic Jewish fellowship of actual Jewish-Israeli believers on Shabbat in Israel. And when we walked out and I asked them what they thought of it, contemptuously, contemptuously, they said, church on Saturday. Hello, church on Saturday. How you doing today? church on Saturday. Why? Because they weren't do, being Jewish enough? You see, Israeli Jewish people don't have an identity crisis. They know they're Jewish. And forgive the terminology, but they don't have to Jew it up to make it good for you. 
I hear the condescending voice in my head, just church on Saturday. And here we are, Hebraic Family Fellowship Saturday Church. I will wear that badge, I will wear that slur as a badge of honor because church, hear me. There is no Saturday church and there is no Sunday church. There is just the church of the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and starting it all over, there is one body of Christ. You're a little too quiet for me today. But I know we're just having a conversation between us. I want to say some things, and if I'm wrong about these things, you can correct me later. We are not a Saturday versus Sunday church. And if that's who you think we are, either you or I are in the wrong place. We do not demean our brothers and sisters in Messiah who will gather to worship the Son of God in heaven tomorrow, not the sun in the sky. And we will not bear false witness against them. I don't care what Constantine did. I'm not responsible and I'm not judged by what he was thinking. We are a people who still love the beautiful tents of Shem and Jacob, meaning we still love the Hebraic context of this amazing story of redemption. We love the way the Sabbaths and the Feast of the Lord give us a, the definitions and the, and the vocabulary to understand what, the, what Jesus and the apostles are teaching us, and we love doing that, and we're going to continue doing that. We are a people who also love the beauty of Japheth and celebrate that we have a place to dwell in this story. We don't have to be Jewish. We have to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. And there's a place for us. If you're here today and you're, you're a Jewish believer, there's always been a place. And if you're a non-Jewish believer in Jesus... God had that worked out before the creation of the world that the beautiful tents of Shem and Jacob would have a place for you. We're not here to set ourselves up as superior because we can say chesed instead of grace. We are not a people that believe Jesus is pagan. We are a people who believe he is the divine word of God who became flesh and tabernacled among us. He was with God in the beginning and he is God. We love his Hebrew name. We celebrate his universal name, Jesus, by which he has become known. That's who we are. I hope. Because if we're not... Between us, you will one day walk away. We will not submit to Greek Gnosticism, nor will we submit to Hebrew Gnosticism. This will not be a church that demeans the deity, identity, and ministry of Yeshua because someone can come and play fast and loose with the Hebrew definitions and context of the biblical prophecies. So let me speed up. So how important is Covenant Youth Camp? Since I still love all things Hebraic, let me answer a question with a question. How important was the Jesus Revolution? Look, look around, we had to take down the ropes today. <laughs> We sit here today because a group of long-haired, unkept teenagers who fell in love with Jesus and changed the world, who did what a generation after generation of the organized church could not do, which was reach the heart of Judah with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. How important is a group of kids coming together to be shown and taught who Yeshua is? It could change the world. That's how important this coming week is. And I guess it's appropriate, okay, this will be number three, that we have at least one man hippie 
I know that makes me the stodgy old preacher guy. I get it. (laughs) I'm not wearing a tie. I'm wearing blue jeans. I'm trying. How important is Saturday, church? It is absolutely essential that people who have loved and, and fallen in love with the Hebrew tense of Shem and love this story can come together and not fall victim to the lies and the deception of the enemy. We will not give up or give in to those who think they have found secret knowledge. For when we found Jesus, we found the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And between us, it may not be popular to say, but he said it and I believe it. No one comes to the Father except through him. Period. So now I have to, I'm getting close. So what are we prepared to do Saturday, church? to take the good news of the kingdom of God, of Yeshua, our Savior, to start a revolution. I'm tired of reading about somebody else's revival. Now, I want to be honest with you, between us, I'm praying that that apostate event in Dallas doesn't happen. I'm asking the Lord to shut it down. But I want you to know something. The Lord, I used to complain, Lord, I can't remove the veil. I can't remove the veil from from their eyes. And the Holy Spirit said, I didn't tell you to remove their veil. I told you to minister with an unveiled face. I told you to let my glory be within you. It's not about what you, so, so if the Lord decides to let that event go on, okay. Because I'm more interested in not shutting them down, but opening us up. Amen? Come on, are you with me? I'm more interested in being a congregation here in Norman, the remotest part of the earth. And letting the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit has promised to do. July 15th, we're going to tackle a prophecy, the virgin birth. I've been asked to present a biblical explanation of Isaiah 7:14, and I promise you I'm going to do exactly that. So what do we do today? Well, it's time for some spiritual warfare. I'm going to invite the worship team back. And right now, if you are going to be attending Covenant Youth Camp as a camper, would you please stand? Do we have any kids here? One, two, I see a few. If you're going to be working at Covenant Youth Camp in any capacity, and if you're already up here, you can wave, would you please stand? Now, church, are you going to pray for them? Are you going to do spirit? Oh, Lord, you know, help them. It's going to be hot. I don't care how hot it's going to be. I care about how much the Holy Spirit's going to show up. I've got my fans all ready to go. Cooling rags. Right now, if you're near any of these people, kids or adults, not the ones up here because they got to start playing. Would you guys just go lay your hands on them, pray on them, pray for them? Just, you know, and maybe have them, if they need to come somewhere, just, I just want you to, there, here's a camper over here on the left. This young lady, right, is it, isn't she going? Yeah, okay. Let's pray over them. Abba, Father. Light a fire in our young people. Do in them what we have failed to do. Start a revolution. Start a revival. 
Lord, I pray for every young person that is coming, the 50 or 60 kids that are coming to this camp, from wherever they're coming, I pray in Yeshua's name that you would guard and protect them, give them safe travels, put your angels around them, before them, encompass about them, get them to this camp and make Covenant Youth Camp a moment like unto the Jesus Revolution, Father. Do something amazing in their lives and in the lives of the adults who are going to be there. Father, I pray for those young people who are coming with physical burdens. I pray for those young people who are coming with spiritual burdens. I'm praying for those who, who are coming that, that, that may be even coming from, from groups that have been struggling with the identity of Jesus, his deity. I, 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 whatever the baggage is, Father, I'm praying for them that you would come and you would meet us in this camp in a way that we will speak about for generations to come that we will remember where it started and who started it. Bless your children. Pour out the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, upon them, within them. Father, I pray for our workers. Lord Jesus, you said in John chapter 7 that the, the Spirit would flow out of us like streams of living water. And I pray for every person that is coming to lead worship, for every adult that is coming to teach a class or to be a group leader or to run an activity, to be a cook. Father, I pray that you would anoint us with your spirit and allow, Lord, fulfill your word in us. Every conversation, every moment. Let streams of living water flow out of those who are called. Father, I pray for those young adult staff who are coming, the junior staff. I pray, Father, that, they're, that if they think they're just coming to have a good time, Father, I pray that you would humble them and make them ready to be used for your glory. Pour out your spirit upon them. Give them a, compass a compassion they've never had before. And Father, I turn my heart now to pray for those who will be assembling at the end of the week in Dallas. And Father, if it is your will to allow that event to happen, I will humbly accept that. But Father, I pray in the name of Yeshua that you will guard the hearts, you will rescue the hearts and minds of those who may, there may still yet be hope. Confound the, 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 the teaching, speak to their spirit, Lord, just tell them clearly, that's not right. Exalt your name. Father, I pray if you let that event happen, that it'll be exactly the opposite of why they've gathered. That while they have come to demean your name, your name will ultimately be exalted and Yeshua will be revealed. And Father, I pray for this church. I pray that you would plant us like a beacon in this remotest place. That you would cause our witness and our influence in Norman, Oklahoma, Moore, Oklahoma City, Noble, and the state and to the world. That you would give us a light and a witness. That someday we would remember God did something and it started right here. Birth a new vision in us. Birth a new revolution in us birth a revival in us to heal the sick to help the hurting to bind up the broken to truly hear your word and your spirit and father I pray I close by calling on your name for the sons and daughters of Abraham around the world and in Israel. Lord, I lift up Judah. Your word declared there would be a generation that would reject, but your word also clearly prophesies there will be a generation who will receive him. Father, it's time for Judah to come home. It's time for Judah to come home to Messiah. Equip us, use us to that end. Don't let our hearts turn away from Jerusalem and from your people. Make us a light not only to the nations, but also to the
to the chosen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for just letting us have this time to talk about some things between us. We submit all this to you. In the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen.